Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Commonwealth bid was debated at City Council last night. The city will formally ask Ontario government to endorse the games, but there are still some concerns. Well, nearly a quarter of all the city taxis are off the roads right now as drivers give up their plates over a sudden loss of affordable insurance coverage. We'll explain. And the Wet'suwet'en leaders are going to be meeting with the federal and provincial government later today. We'll try to tell you exactly what's going to happen and what the ramifications are. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Interesting meeting at uh, Hamilton City Hall yesterday, city council meeting, uh, with a number of contentious items on the agenda. And uh, we've been covering some of those over the last number of weeks here on this program. Uh, none the least of which, of course, is the uh, interest in the Commonwealth 100 Games bid. Uh, you've heard from a number of the principals involved in that committee, uh, the private sector committee that is uh, working together to try, to try to get the bid for the city of Hamilton on, on what would be the 100th anniversary of the Commonwealth Games. And uh, they were looking for a thumbs up from city council last night, and uh, they got it. Uh, with There are some uh, codicils attached to this, though. Uh, we're not going full bore into this. I want to bring Brad Clark, city councilor, uh, into the conversation here about exactly what's going on and what's going to happen going forward. Brad, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Maybe just uh, for the sake of our listeners, you could explain exactly what was being asked of you last night at city council. So last night, the Hamilton 100 private group uh, was asking for a letter of endorsement uh, from City Council, uh, formally, for the actual bid itself for the Commonwealth Games. And so that letter of endorsement is, is another step in the process. It indicates to the Commonwealth Games um, Committee itself uh, that the City of Hamilton is interested in pursuing uh, the Games uh, at this particular point. No more, no less. In other words, as uh, Mike Segarek, your finance guy, said, this is not a commitment, is it? That's correct, and, and I, I, I sought clarification of that, that there's no financial commitment at this point. That doesn't mean that we're in um, and there's no way out of the, the games if things go astray. What it gets us in is the actual competition for the bids. So now the Commonwealth Games will review the bids of the, the Hamilton 100 put forward and any other one any other bids across the, the world, uh, and then make the determination whether or not um, uh, we would get we would be the actual group that would be looking at the games and would do all the financial work and come up with the actual plan for the games. So it's it's just the next step in the process. Brad, what's your uh, read on what you've heard and seen so far on this? And and again, obviously, it's way too premature to be making any final commitments to this one way or the other. But uh, you know, you, you've seen some of the numbers right now. You've seen what's being proposed. Uh, what's, what's your read? I think the Hamilton 100 has done a, a remarkable um, uh, job at preparing the bid. Uh, some of the financials and, and some of their assumptions I have concerns with and uh, I don't agree with. Um, but for the most part, they've put together a, a, an excellent bid. Um, they've indicated that uh, the municipal cost, for example, would be $100 million. Um, what they've done is they, they looked at the actual numbers for the municipality and then looked at the revenue that would be garnered from the games and subtracted the revenue uh, from the municipal cost, so the municipal cost would only be $100 million. Um, in reality, uh, that's not usually the process uh, that that happens and at the end of the day the municipality is usually responsible for anywhere from 20 to 30 percent of the cost 
which for the municipality would be 200 to 300 million dollars. That's always a, a, an interesting aspect of this. Uh, when you look at games, whether it's Commonwealth Games, Olympic Games, whatever the case might be, uh, those that are putting the bid together are always very optimistic, as you might expect, and say, you know, it's going to be a, a money maker. It's going to do this. It's going to do that. Uh, there's so many hitches along the way. I mean, cost overruns, a lot of stuff that can actually go wrong. Uh, not too many of these enterprises actually do come out of this in the black, do they? It's very rare, and 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 so it's having a plan where that you're you're indicating there's going to be a profit, and the profit could be used for legacy, et cetera, et cetera, is problematic. Um, one of my concerns is that once we're done and we have all of these brand new capital assets for the municipality, now the municipality has the responsibility of operating them. So we have to make sure that we have the staff that, that can actually manage these facilities. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, so what you do is normally you would put in a legacy fund uh, that would be 10 years or 20 years worth of operating. So we need to negotiate that through this process with, with Hamilton 100 or with the Commonwealth Games to ensure that if we do secure the games, that the actual operating costs of new pools, new rec centers, et cetera, et cetera, can be borne from the, the, the legacy uh, fund. So it's not going to be a burden to taxpayers. I, I can understand that logic as we go down the road on this. Uh, now, and again, I've, I've, I've had P.J. McCandy and Lou Frappaport, a number of the people have been on the committee here, have joined us here to talk about what they're talking about in broad strokes, obviously, and there's a lot of detail yet to come on, on where it's going to go and who's going to do what, etc. But the essence of what the, they were telling us, uh, Brad, uh, was that, look at, yeah, this is a, a big commitment when it comes down for the city to make a financial commitment like this, but they seem to equate it and say, look at this is about the same as you'd spend in your capital budget over the next number of years anyway. And a lot of the projects we're talking about are already in your 10-year capital plan. Is that how you read it? Um, some of the projects are in the 10-year capital plan, and some projects are not. And so what would happen is that if we were to move through this Commonwealth Games, we would have to assess which projects in the capital plan are being bumped. And so that's the challenge. If you have a community that is expecting a rec center uh, in the near future, a local community rec center, and if that rec center gets bumped because of a multi-purpose sports complex gets put into the, the capital plan, then there are issues with that. And the other issue that we have to be cognizant of, and I'm not saying that is, it, it defeats the, the games, is we, we do have a debt policy that has been approved by council, and that debt policy ostensibly sets a debt ceiling based on, on you know, our cash flow and, and ability to service that debt. And so the $300 million would take us above that debt ceiling. So we need to be very, we need to understand exactly how we're going to finance it, how much is the venture, how much is loans, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't have those details yet. So at this point, what I suggested to my colleagues is we should support the in endorsement, um, but then move to a memorandum of understanding with uh, the Commonwealth Games and have the discussion on the MPA so we actually understand exactly what this means to the finances for the city. And then if, if we're not comfortable, then we can, can jump off at that point. I mean, we saw this happen, and I'll just equate this to one of our other projects that we did years ago, because the World Road Cycling Championships, 
Uh, and, and we had to make those arrangements, as you've just described. I mean, there were some infrastructure jobs on, on roads that had to be done, obviously, which is where the race was going to be held. And that bumped a number of projects that we had already, as the city council, put in place. Uh, and those ones that got bumped uh, did not come up a year or two later. It was about 10 years later before the city found the money to get around to it. So there can be significant delays, and uh, I guess significant frustration when that story thing process, and that process rather starts to occur. Yeah, and, that, and that's an excellent example because the, 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 the World Road Cycling Championship, you know, that, that was where the provincial or the federal government put in $10 million. Yeah. Uh, the province put in 2.25 million, and then we had the uh, Trillium grant of 1.25 million, and the municipality uh, actual costs were 425,000. So the negotiation through that process really minimized the impact to the municipality, but there was significant positive benefit because we had to improve the roads that the 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 cycling was going to happen on. So the $10 million investment really did help the city out significantly, but you're correct, it bumped projects down the road. Uh, way down the road, as it turned out, for some of them. I don't think some of them have been done yet, as it turns out. Uh, when you were looking at this the first time, and this is when it was at committee, I guess about a week or so ago, Brad, mm-hmm. uh, even the, your finance guy, Mike Zagarek, had said, look, at, uh, I, I guess one of your colleagues had, had talked to him about his read on the numbers that they were presenting. And, and he withheld judgment on that. And I'm paraphrasing this. He said, because he said, those are their numbers, not ours. Uh, we're going to have to do some number crunching. Have they done that yet? Have you had any more clarity on that? No. And it's such a tight timeline. And I feel for our staff because they have the same trepidations that many around the table have. We haven't had a chance to really crunch the numbers and, and verify what Hamilton 100 is putting forward. For example, they may have estimates on engineering costs or standards for certain buildings that um, they believe meets what the, the, the provincial code is, but it may not meet the standard for the municipality. And so uh, we need our engineers and our, our people to look at those, those projects and make sure that what they're proposing actually meets what we want and then what the cost would be to do that. And, and it's such a tight timeline getting it into the Commonwealth Games bid process. All of that will happen after the selection. So if we win the bid, then there's an awful lot of work that's going to have to happen to, to be able to verify that the numbers are to the satisfaction of our staff. Um, and, and the numbers may not be, they, 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 there may be significant variance in a number of them. We don't know yet, uh, but we'll work through that process. I, I don't want to dredge up bad memories, but I mean, if we want to go back to Pan Am and the stadium discussion, forget about the location debate and everything else, but let's, let's talk about uh, the project itself. Uh, I guess one of the biggest frustrations you as a councillor felt uh, was uh, basically city council was on the outside looking in during that whole construction process. Uh, and as things started to fall apart and get waylaid, uh, there was a, not a whole lot you could do about it. Uh, is is that front of mind with you when you start going down this road to suggest that look at this is going to be in our city we, we're going to have to have some control here? Yeah, th- this is uh, will be slightly different. Uh, you're absolutely correct about the Pan Am Games, but the Pan Am Games um, originally they, they looked at it as though it was going to be a Hamilton bid, and then uh, it became really a Toronto bid with a number of local municipalities participating in it. And when it became a large Toronto bid, uh, the province of Ontario, Infrastructure Ontario, took over the bid. Mm-hmm. 
and and it was it really we had no control at all at that particular point. The way I understand where we are with the Commonwealth Games, this would be a Hamilton bid, and we would have far more control uh, and 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 be making the decisions uh, for Hamilton. The prototype that we've seen is is pretty impressive, and I know you and a number of your colleagues commented on that at the meeting yesterday. Uh, on paper, it looks fabulous like this, uh, and, and I think a lot of people are enthusiastic because of that. Uh, but there's some pretty tight time frames here. Uh, that The council's going to have to be forced to make a decision on some stuff pretty soon. Uh, this is all going to unfold pretty quickly in the next couple of months, really, after, if, if this process proceeds as they hope it will with the Canadian organization and, and ultimately with the, the Commonwealth Games organization. It is a remarkably impressive proposal and bid. Uh, but it is a remarkably tight time frame for us to do the financial crunching uh, that needs to be done once the, the bid is approved. Um, and, and so, as I suggested last night, uh, jumping right into a multi-party agreement without having a basic understanding of what the city wants to get out of it, I think is problematic. And I suggested to Mr. Zagarek that we might want to proceed a uh, with start with a memorandum of understanding with all of the parties so that they understand very clearly we understand what they want we un- they understand what we want and once we have that MOU put in place then that would be the principles that would be guiding us through the MPA uh, I know Hamilton Council is very keen on um, the athletics village becoming um, uh, affordable housing mm-hmm. and there's been a lot of talk about 6,000 units which would, which would be remarkable You'd want to put that in the MOU up front, that, that one of the, the, the major visions, goals for the city is affordable housing. Uh, and, and some of the other prospects, too, that are going Correct. to be located in other parts of the city. Like mm-hmm. I said, it, it looks interesting, and, and it's, I can understand how some people are getting pretty uh, uh, enthusiastic about this. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, you know, you have to take a pragmatic approach about this, too. And it's, uh, it's hard sometimes to take the emotion out of it and start looking at numbers and say, is this really in the best interest of what we need to do here? That is very difficult. I, I have tried to compartmentalize personally so that I keep my emotions out of it because it's very exciting I want to jump on the bandwagon. This will be fantastic, and and you know you see all the 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 hopeful signs down the road of what the city would look like. Um, but we need to be realistic in terms of what the financial implications would be on our debt, on our capital plan, on the taxpayers itself. Uh, because at the end of the day, any debt that we incur has to be financed by the taxpayers. That means the servicing costs and we need to make sure that it's all reasonable to the taxpayer. Well, interesting step and an important step last night by City Council. Brad, let's stay in touch. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Brad Clark, of course, uh, City Councilor. Cautiously optimistic, I guess, is maybe the best way to describe the mood of Council last night. Uh, Some pretty positive comments yet. uh, But uh, as Brad said, there's a long way to go here, and a number of T's that have to be crossed and I's that have to be dotted. Uh, but really, by the end of March, there's going to have to be another commitment made, and, and on and on it goes. And, and we have to also remind ourselves, by the way, that this is for the 2030 Games, the 100th anniversary. Calgary has expressed interest in the 2026 uh, Games, uh, which in one context may sound like, well, what's the big deal? Well, they're not going to have two consecutive games in one country. That's just not the way they do business here. So if Calgary is successful or seems to be successful in, in approaching the 2026 bid, uh, it, it's not a good news sign a good, or good news at all for the 2030 bid. So we'll keep an eye on what's happening with that, too. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Trouble getting a cab in the last little while? Well, it may well be because about 25% of the fleet in the city is uh, idle, sitting around, doing nothing. Uh, and there's an insurance reason for this. Joining us to talk about this and to add some clarity to uh, what is becoming a very troubling situation is Anthony Rizzuto, who is the president of Blue Line Taxi here in Hamilton. Anthony, good to have you on the show again. Uh, I wish it was under happier circumstances, though. Uh, what, what's going on? Well, uh, the uh, the insurance, um, I should say, the taxi industry in, in southern Ontario is in a crisis. Um, the, um, the carrier that uh, used to look after taxis, which was RSA, Royal Sun Alliance, and Chubb Insurance, uh, basically gave notice in September that they were co- going off risk come the renewal periods. The renewal periods were January 31st and February 16th. Um, did they give a reason? Um, well, they don't have yeah, to, they, but did they? Well, the, yeah, they did. So, so for instance, Chubb uh, basically bought a company which was called Ace Insurance, uh, which insured taxis. And Chubb isn't; uh, it's not part of their, their 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 insurance book. So they basically said, "This is not what we insure, so we're getting off risk." Um, yeah, the RSA situation was a little obscure. There was a uh, um, a fleet service company that uh, acted like a broker and uh, insured about 3,000 taxis in southern Ontario. This particular company um, got the notice that RSA was coming off risk and basically failed to uh, pay them the last two installments uh, to a tune of about $3.8 million. Uh, So at that point, RSA immediately cancelled them and uh, basically they strung us along, saying that they found uh, you know another carrier. Actually, both brokerages did the one that looked after Chubb and the one that looked after uh, the RSA. And at pretty well the eleventh hour, they said, uh, "Sorry, we we uh, we can't find anybody." And at that point, it left us in a position where we had to obtain um, facility insurance through the government. And let's talk about cost then. So uh, it's rated uh, really uh, uh, peculiarly. It's uh, it's rated by city to city. So, for instance, Tr- uh, Hamilton's rate, uh, the lowest rate uh, is fourteen thousand five hundred, uh, and the highest rate is twenty four thousand dollars per year. The rating is based on a zero star to three star. So, if you've been insured for three years, you're accident free. You have no tickets, no driving offenses. You become a three star rating. And uh, your your rate is around fourteen thousand five hundred. If you've had tickets accidents, you can go to what's called a zero star, and you're at twenty four thousand dollars a year. Which, by the way, is in some cases double, and maybe even a little more than double what they're used to paying. Uh, the average rate was between, uh, I say, seven and nine thousand. So. In some cases, it's almost triple. Yeah, it, this is so obviously. I mean, you you, you park the car. There's not much you can do about this. Uh, well, the, yeah. So, so there's a lot of drivers are you know they own their own vehicles or they lease the, the taxi license. For them, it's just it's just out of their wheelhouse. There's no way they can they can make it happen. And uh, and they've they've just simply gone out of business. This is not a Hamilton only problem, is it? No, it's not. It's a London, Hamilton, Toronto. It's uh, part of Southern Ontario. <sighs> But with this scenario, as you've just described it, uh, unless you can find somebody who's going to pick up the bill here, uh, you, you're going to start losing more and more units, aren't you? That's correct. 
So, I mean, to say that 25% of them are off the road right now, uh, this is not the worst-case scenario. It could, go, it could go much higher than this. Oh, it, it will be. So, so how the facility works is they give you what's called uh, – now, keep in mind, facilities are overwhelmed because they're getting inundated with all these, these people looking for facility insurance. So what they do is they basically give you a uh, projected rate – and it's not the actual rate. So what happens is right now we've we've been quoted. Uh, certain guys have been quoted, you know, fifteen thousand, eighteen thousand, twenty thousand. And once they take your information, they go back and facility works out the actual real number. And then in thirty to forty five days, they send back their findings. And that's where it could really really impact everybody. So when you think that your your rate is fourteen thousand five hundred. You might come back, and it could be twenty four thousand. So, uh, we're not uh, out of the woods at all. There's so many different areas that, that we need to touch on here, but because of the ramifications of this, obviously, uh, you know, the the industry itself. I mean, you're going to see revenues down sharply as a result of this. The customer service is going to be an element to this. I mean, uh, people rely on taxis. I mean, to to a large extent, to get from point A to point B. Not everybody uses public transit, and 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 quite frankly, when you're talking about a a, a people mover plan in a city, taxis have to play a role in this. Uh, it looks like it's going to be a diminishing role, and not by design in a situation like this. Uh, the city has a role to play when it comes to taxi licenses, uh, but what about the insurance itself? My understanding, Anthony, is that, uh, for instance, in British Columbia, uh, the provincial government has kind of stepped in to, to give some some clarity and some stability there. Yeah, they've, they've got a very unique program, um, uh, one that uh, we would love the Ontario government to actually take a look at. Uh, we sent uh, that information off to, uh, to Queen's Park and to... Uh, our, our MPPs and hoping they can uh, maybe even start to look at it, if not adopt it. I mean, it's a it's a basically pay per use style insurance. So when the vehicle is engaged with a customer or en route to a customer, their insurance kicks in. So when the driver's sitting idle uh, and not uh, not doing anything, he, he's he's not paying for that insurance. And keep in mind, taxis don't operate twenty four seven all the time. A lot of the uh, single owners only can work, you know, an eight to ten hour day, and then their car is parked. Um, but they're paying for vert insurance for that uh, the remainder of the day. So, so in other words, the insurance company, when they're pulling a policy together, did obviously because they've just just jumped away from this. But they're assuming that cab's going to be busy twenty four hours. You know, in other words, if you're stopped driving, then I pick up the night shift, and they figure it's going to be on the road all the time. So you're going to pay that way. But that's not the reality anymore. No, that's definitely not the reality anymore. Um, you know, the business has changed, uh, you know, and uh, guys aren't working like they used to. It's, it's a whole different model now. Uh, it's very much moved into the, we call the owner-operator, you know, mode, and, uh, and it, it's, a, it's a better reality for everybody. The driver owns his own car. Um, you know, he protects it, uh, looks after it, uh, does better customer service because it's, it's his own. Well, and I know there were some concerns in the other system, too, because when they were leasing it out to somebody else, sometimes the, the quality control issues and things of this nature, but that seems to have worked itself out, uh, which is good news, I guess, for the, for consumers and for everybody else in this. Uh, have you had any feedback at all? I mean, the province has got to understand the, the gravity of this situation. Well, they do, and, and their kind of, you know, solution is, well, you know, we provide facility insurance for, for you know, this whole this situation, and we're saying, well, yeah, you provide facility insurance for high-risk people who had impaired, reckless, careless, and, you know, as a last resort insurance. I said, 
but we have, you know, loss ratios. We have proof of our, of, you know, of how, how we handle our, our business, and it's good. It's it's actually very very good. Um, in fact, the as I mentioned, that Chubb policy had a 23 percent loss ratio over five years. Any insurance company in the world would say that is a money maker all day. So when when we talk about loss ratios, most insurance companies um, are pretty well accustomed to paying up to 75 percent. So they make 25% profit on, on their, their policy. But they were making, you know, the reverse. They were making over 75% profit on that particular program. And that encompassed about 100 taxis. So it wasn't like our, our, our losses were, were poor. We were actually very, very good. And, uh, you know, it's just when, when you talk about, you know, auto insurance in Ontario, just even for personal, it, you know, went up 11% uh, across the board. But when, you know, insurance companies hear that, you know, that someone didn't pay an insurance company, everybody gets cold feet and no one really wants to talk to you. Let's be clear on this, though, because the government policy that, that many of your drivers, and I'm just not Blue Line, but any other drivers, are relying on right now is, is called the coverage of last resort policy. That was essentially set up, just so our, our listeners understand, for drivers that essentially couldn't get insurance. I mean, the rates would be too high. Maybe they had too many accidents. The driver's abstract it was, it was not impressive. So that was the last resort. But this is a different scenario. The people that are applying to it now, because the companies that they were being insured with have bailed on them. And it's a different scenario, and the government doesn't seem to realize that. Well, exactly, and that is why we're we're pushing and, and, and we're talking to as many people as we can to see if we can get, you know, some assistance, especially from the government level. Um, you know, they they tend to think that you know, you know, we can't force somebody to write a particular, you know, book of of business when it comes to insurance. Yet they regulate the insurance industry. So they have some influence, and uh, we're hoping that uh, you know they'll they'll uh, you know look after us at some point. I mean, for people, if you don't have a taxi license, but I mean, even if you you, you have a debt problem or something and a bad credit rating, you understand that you'll always find somebody that'll loan you money to get a car, for instance. Uh, but you're going to pay a higher rate than somebody who's got a better credit rating, and that's yeah. why that's what this policy was set up for. But that's not who's applying for it right now. So there's a, there's an incongruity to what's going on here uh, that the government yeah, I, needs to realize. Yeah, it is. It's putting a lot of guys in the corner. Um, you know, and, you know, it, it, it's sad because a lot of these guys, you know, they, you know, I've, I've been obviously talking to them over the last, you know, three or four weeks and, and they've been, you know, driving here for 25 years plus some of them and, you know, accident free, perfect driving records. You know, they've got families, mortgages like everybody else. And, you know, now they've got thrown into this, you know, this nightmare and, and it's nothing to do with them. Um, you know, it, it's sad because, you know, I believe that they should be individually rated based on their performance, like everybody else. And uh, unfortunately, the insurance companies don't see it that way. They paint us with the same brush. It's one particular policy across the board. For instance, that that RSA policy with 3,000 taxis, that was one particular policy number. And it affected everybody. No matter what the driving record was. No matter what their driving record was, most, by the way, are, are better than average, and but they get lumped in with the bad drivers. Yes, I mean, you know, we have there's mechanism in place. So obviously, when you apply for insurance, they're looking out for for stuff. So we just don't simply sign people up immediately. We have to send the insurance company the driver's abstract, um, his uh, his history of driving, whether it be on a personal vehicle or a commercial vehicle. That information also goes to the city of Hamilton. So when you apply for a taxi license, you have to show up with your your criminal check as well as your driving abstract. So if you show up with your driving abstract and it has, 
uh, six demerit points and, say, four moving violations, the city won't give you a taxi license. Flat out. They don't care whether it was on your personal car because they're looking out for the, the welfare of, of uh, the city of Hamilton. Well, I, I, that, I get that. That also happens on renewal. Yeah, well, let's talk about renewal for just a second because that's where the, the, the city does come in. Uh, because it's the city that, that issues these licenses, and it's the city collects the fees, uh, and that's a significant cost to a driver and an owner as well. Yes, it is. So when when a driver, you know, after the year is up and he goes back to renew his license, he has to again produce his his abstract and his uh, his his criminal record, and again it, it goes upon review, and the city is able to determine whether they want to continue to license this driver or not. When it comes to insurance, the city also gets a certificate of insurance from every taxi that's allowed on the road. So before a taxi goes on the road, a, a driver or an owner will come in, will make application for insurance, and once the insurance is granted, the, the, uh, the insurance company will directly send the city a certificate of insurance outlining which vehicle, which driver, etc. And at that point, the city then gives us the green light to allow them to go on the road. So where do, where do you go from here? I mean, this is an industry that a lot of people still rely on, especially, of course, the, the disabled uh, cabs that are, are out there. And I understand two of them are off the road now. Uh, and there's no guarantee the other ones are going to be there much longer either. Uh, this is going to put an awful lot of pressure on public transit. It's going to uh, strand some people, quite frankly, that rely on you on a pretty regular basis. Uh, well, that, go ahead. Yeah, we do. We, I mean, we, we, we do provide service for the vulnerable sector. We, we do transport probably between uh, both companies over 300 school kids every day um that's a big big factor we have the uh the hsr city of hamilton transcap contract which uh which helps in in stony creek and glambrook and and the red hill business park so these are you know things that that will definitely be impacted um when you know you when you start to drop taxis which, by the way, I, I, people may not be aware of that program, but that's essentially getting kids to and from school, from home to school, uh, where school buses are not there, they don't qualify. There's a number of different rationales for this. But, I mean, uh, you've stepped up and this is contract. So, I mean, that is that program in peril right now? Um, it, it's, it's not. At this point, no. But, I mean, the next, I'd say, 30, 45 days, I, I couldn't predict what's going to happen. Um, you know, I know a lot of guys, as I said, are forced in the corner, they're going to pay the fee, uh, but um, you know, I mean, obviously, from from where I would sit, I would I would probably protect our our contract business, uh, you know, the most important stuff that that uh, makes sense, and you know, and somewhere, you know, someone that's going to suffer. There's no doubt about it. I know there are people listening to this right now, that Anthony, and say, look at what's the big deal? Uber's just going to come in here and pick up the slack. What would you say to that? Well, I mean. The rideshare is is something that again, I mean, I've always had some second guesses about how they're insured. Um, I, I, you know, the, the city d- does their best to to uh, to control them to a certain extent, but they don't check for insurance. Uh, there is no screening of the drivers. There's no onboard cameras. You know, they're not mandated to have, you know, uh, safety checks twice a year like we are. We have to have snow tires from December first to March fifteenth. It's mandatory. It's not an option. I mean, these are the things that we have in place that they don't. So what happens is, yeah, they can come flying in and, and start to service customers, but what they do is that there's no regulation on their rates. So at that point, if they realize there is a, a, a surge in, in demand, uh, 
their automatic surcharging kicks in. So the customer at the end of the side of that will have to either have no choice but to pay those exorbitant rates. Well, and that's supply and demand, right? I mean, if there are fewer Absolutely. cabs on the road, the Uber drivers are going to figure, well, okay, it's, it's time to raise the rates. What are you going to do well, about it? It, it, it? It's an algorithm. There's no in-between. It just happens automatically. So there is a, this is a cause and effect thing that people have to keep in mind. For sure. And you have to keep in mind, you know, who's the guy behind the wheel of this Uber car? I mean, it, it, are they insured properly? You know, who, who are they? You know, they're not local. They don't have to be local. Yeah, well, oftentimes you don't find that out until it's too late. Um, lots more to discuss on this. I'm glad you had some time to talk about this and, and raise some awareness and so people are aware of exactly what's going on. Uh, and it would be great if the provincial government stepped in. The MPPs who are listening, and I know they listen to this program, uh, this is this is not a major thing for you to do, but it would be a huge, huge benefit to this industry if they would just revise and revamp, uh, re- I guess, the, the the existing programs that they've got in place to try to pick up the slack here until you guys can find something better. Anthony, we'll stay in touch on this. Oh, Thanks great. again for this today. Thanks, Have a great day. Anthony Rizzuto, of course, the president of Blue Line Taxi. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What's going on with the protests right across the country, the blockades, uh, which, of course, essentially uh, is starting because of a uh, pipeline that was uh, supposed to be built in northern B.C. And uh, the interference, of course, by, uh, well, some would say the uh, interference, anyway, the Wet'suwet'en leaders uh, who decided that they were opposed to this project and uh, set up a blockade, and uh, this has been going on for weeks. And most of the stuff that we've seen, including the one here in Hamilton earlier this week and the one in Caledonia uh, that is ongoing, are uh, in sympathy and in support of uh, the uh, Wet'suwet'en uh, people that are holding up the project there and waiting for a meeting, which we are now told is going to take place today between uh, members of the British Columbia government and uh, members of the federal government. Looks like uh, the federal minister, uh, Carolyn Bennett, will be there and and other members to try to find some resolution to this. So what are the chances of that? What are the chances of a breakthrough here that could resolve this, at least, and maybe ease some of the pressure that seems to be mounting right across the country? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Christo Avila, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, great to have you on the show. Thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me. This is a daunting task, and there's so many different aspects and and and, and elements to what's going on, and so many different perspectives on this. Uh, if you were a betting man, what are the chances they're going to come out of this meeting and say, "I think we've got a, a resolution here"? I mean, I'm not sure that's going to happen. I mean, hopefully there's some progress here. Hopefully there's you know movement in the right direction. But it's awfully hard to to you know to go into this uh, a meeting like this and you know, come out with, with the you know, a definitive resolution. And a lot of the, the people involved wanted to meet with the Prime Minister directly. Um, you know, as you noted, there will be some pretty senior people there. But if the Prime Minister doesn't end up being there, maybe some people will still be unsatisfied that, you know, uh, he's not meeting. And, you know, Justin Trudeau's essential argument has been that he doesn't want to encourage this sort of action, which makes it look like, you know, the, 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 the protests are being done uh, for the vanity of the Prime Minister to meet him. And I don't necessarily know if that's really getting things off on the on the right foot. I think this is a issue that's extremely important and, and demands the full attention of the prime minister, whether or not you agree with any particular side. And I think you know Carolyn Bennett, frankly, isn't uh, isn't uh, a big enough deal. I think to handle this issue. Uh, I would have thought Christia Freeland, who seems to be you know the 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 troubleshooter for this government in so many different facets, and I'm not even sure if that would be enough. You're right, absolutely right, Christo. 
if in fact, you know, the chiefs and or the elders here are saying uh, a face-to-face with the prime minister is what we need to try to resolve this, it would behoove the prime minister to at least consider that. No, certainly. And I mean, like you could make, like the prime minister can make the argument or some, I've heard some in the media make the argument that all this would in, do is encourage other groups, whether indigenous or, or otherwise, to hold protests with the view of meeting with the prime minister. But, you know, these issues are long running. You know, this isn't being solely done with the view of wanting to have a one-on-one versus Justin Trudeau. These are broader issues. And the point is less that the prime minister would debase himself by meeting with indigenous protesters and more that, you know, this is an issue of national and in many ways, because indigenous nations are nations, this is an international issue. And as such, the, the, the prime minister should be involved in some direct fashion maybe more than he has currently been. Christo, do you think this caught the government off guard? I mean, you know, the, I know the prime minister's, one of his promises from the time he became prime minister, of course, has been reconciliation. And, and we could probably debate for the next three hours whether or not there's been any effective measures in that regard. But uh, the fact of the matter is it's it's an issue that seemed to be on the back burner. Uh, and we've seen protests about pipelines before, too, but we've never seen anything of this magnitude where it has started to spread right across the country. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they expected this level of resistance. I don't know if they expected, you know, solidarity protests in in places like Ontario. I don't know uh, that they expected that, especially ones that also engaged in blockades. Maybe they thought, you know, Toronto or Ottawa would be demonstrations outside of the PMO or at certain MPs' offices. But, you know, to see what the the in Tyendinaga, and I don't know if they expected that. I also don't know. If, you know, they expected a couple of years ago that indigenous people would would uh, be more critical of their government. I, I think that the, the Trudeau liberals really believe that people would be so disillusioned by Stephen Harper that, frankly, they could get away with with um, being rather you know on the right side of the political spectrum when it comes to workers and indigenous people and the environment. And they would sort of just be allowed to get away with it because they were not you know, wearing blue. They were not conservatives. And because they're not conservatives, people will not protest them because they're not conservatives. And and there are some people like that who will protest actions when done by, you know, Doug Ford, but not Justin Trudeau, you know, workers, um, you, because unions are divided, let's say, between the liberals and the NDP at times. Um, when the conservatives are in power, everyone can sort of unite. When the liberals are in power, there are unions reticent to criticize the liberals. That's just an example. Um, but We've seen here that in the last election and, and since that indigenous people have been very, very open to criticizing this government on pipelines, on rights issues, on, uh, you know, fighting indigenous children in court. And I think that you, we're, we're seeing here that a lot of people uh, for a variety, because this is a pipeline issue, but it's also an indigenous rights and land issue, are, are not happy with the government. And, and then the same thing with the B.C. government, you know, which is a, a, a left of center government. And that's one of the anomalies, of course, about this meeting that's going to be happening later on today. Uh, obviously, Carolyn Bennett's going to be carrying the, the message from the uh, the Prime Minister's office that they'd like to put this project to move forward, uh, with some variations, obviously, to try to, to satisfy some of the concerns here. Uh, the B.C. government's on record as being opposed to most of these projects, so I think they're just looking for an end to the to the confrontation. So different agendas, I guess, for different people. But the, here's, here's the thing that seems to crop up time and time again, Christo, and, and it happened... Well, in Caledonia with the Douglas Creek incident a number of years ago, and it's happened with a few others. Uh, you, the, the people I've seen that have commented on this from the government, and quite frankly from uh, Coastal Gaslink as well, the company that's in charge of this project, 
said we've done all that negotiation. We we talked to them. We we you know we signed off. We got them to sign. I think there were what fifteen or twenty different uh, bands in this particular area that said we're okay with this. Uh, you know, with the, there were some negotiations. They 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 think this is a good project. It's going to create jobs for their people, and they were okay with this. And then after a fact. Uh, these elders come along from what's wet and simply say, well, we're opposed to this. I, I don't know what the process was. I don't know if they were at the table and, and were able to voice this or they were overlooked. I have no idea. But it, it's it, I, I think it caused an awful lot of frustration to say, well, who do we talk to? Who speaks for, for, for these groups these days? And, and that's kind of a gray area, it seems. Well, I mean, there's a couple issues there. One, there have been projects that have been protested by Indigenous uh, uh, nations yep. and, and bands and, and groups that the governments uh, in various provinces and, and federally have just ignored. Justin Trudeau has been very clear that when he ran for prime minister in 2015, he was much more willing to sort of imply that Indigenous people had maybe not a veto, but something approaching that. But since then, Justin Trudeau has been very clear that consultation is really only on the terms of the federal government. That consultation will happen, but you better end up agreeing with us because otherwise we're just going to force it through and we'll send in the RCMP after you and, and so on and so forth. And that's nothing special. That's the historical nature of how Canada has consulted Indigenous people, which is at the end of a pointy stick, right? Um, but on the particular issue here, it really is a question of who has rights. And, and actually, it's not that unclear. It's very clear, according to a recent Supreme Court decision, that the, that the colonial ban system, whether you consider it more democratic than the hereditary system or not, we can have that debate, is not, does not have the authority in these types of cases. That the land is ultimately under the stead of the traditional hereditary chiefs. And so the bans are irrelevant. And, and, and it sounds bad to say, but frankly, it doesn't matter that 80, 90 percent of the nation supports or a ban supports a particular issue. The Supreme Court has been clear. They do not have the right to make that decision. They only control the direct land covered by the ban, not necessarily the wider hereditary territory. And that's the complication here. But the rule of law is actually very clear, and the government is wrong. The, 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 the hereditary chiefs have the full authority to do what they're doing. Uh, and, and that's been their message, and they've been consistent through that. Uh, well, it's not just their message. We have to be very clear. Yeah. I think some of the media have tried to kind of nuance monger this. The Supreme Court is clear. The power rests with the hereditary chiefs. It's inconvenient for the government and the coastal gasoline company, but it's the truth. So with that in mind, why did they even proceed with the project then? Because, you know, the, the rule is, of law hasn't it, always applied evenly, right? So we often talk about the need for the rule of law. You know, we have to protest, but peacefully. We have to demand better social justice, but without rocking the boat too much. And whether we're talking about racially marginalized people or poor people or working class people, often the rule of law does not apply to them in the way the rule of law applies to the owners of the biggest companies and the biggest industries in this country. So Indigenous people have always been promised things in writing, promised things in law. And when inconvenient, um, those things have been ignored. And I think that's one of the issues here. And I think, frankly, I mean, if the government wants to, you know, challenge this, they would have to find some way of making a fundamental change to the nature of nation-to-nation discourse. They would have to look for constitutional amendments. And frankly, I, I just... I. To me, it's, to me, it's quite clear that this project has no basis uh, in, in, in happening as it's been done. 
because the, the authority rests with the hereditary chiefs. And at least as it's laid out now, there have been reports that there are alternative routes across the Wet'suwet'en territory that the chiefs would be happy with. I don't know if that's been rejected because of practicality or profitability, but, you know, they're not 100% close to any engagement here. They have been willing to negotiate. How badly did they want it? I guess that's the... I, I'm talking about uh, Coastal Gaslink, not, not, uh, not the... Well, yeah, the, no, certainly. Not yeah. the aggrieved parties here. So they've laid out three conditions as we know it, and I'm sure that's going to be the basis for the, the meeting today. Uh, one is the removal of that contentious mobile RCMP detachment. Well, they haven't... They've kind of removed it. They've stepped back. They're, they're still there, though. So that's been done in half measure. Uh, the end of RCMP patrols in the area, uh, which the RCMP are reticent to agree to, and the suspension of coastal gas link work in this area. Now, we understand that the workers have actually put their tools down and they aren't working on that right now. But would they walk away from this if that was what it took to, to resolve this? Would they say, okay, we'll go to a plan B? Well, um, I mean, I, I think I can't speak for everybody in that because I don't know what all the people are thinking uh, you know, behind the scenes, they might say one thing, but they have, you know, contingencies in the background. I think, at least as far as the RCMP goes, I think the, the issue is that having them there sort of escalates things, and whether or not it's intentional or, or not, um, having, you know, the police there, we've seen instances, we've seen reports, in this cases and others, where um, RCMP snipers have been ready to effectively shoot and kill Indigenous protesters. Having that knowledge out there um, does not create the basis for like a fruitful discussion. And whether that's fair or not to individual RCMP officers who maybe have every intention of doing their job, you know, decently and fairly and safely for everyone, I think having there is sort of poisoning the well. So at the very least, by sort of having them pull away. It gives everyone a chance to cool down and maybe a more fruitful discussion can happen because, you know, people are heated now, right? And, and not without reason necessarily. Well, tensions are high, but it, it has been, especially the one out in British Columbia, has been, for all intents and purposes, a peaceful demonstration, uh, which is why they're asking, why, why are these guys here and why are they armed? Well, that's, another, that's another great point, certainly. I mean, it's, you know, you, it, it, the implication is, well, have they done anything wrong? Well, then the implication is they're about to do something that risks the the health and safety of the public, and maybe there's no basis for that. And so what purpose does the RCMP have in that scenario? Is it is it intimidation? If that's not the intent, then you think like, well, the best situation is to remove that that that, that potential sense, right? And it doesn't take much, does it, to, to set something off? I mean, even the comments from the, the, the Quebec Premier the other day that uh, that the protesters in Kanawaki were armed with AK-47s, uh, which was erroneous. Uh, but that's 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 the sort of thing that makes a bad situation worse. Well, no, it certainly could, right? It certainly could, whether that information, well, especially when it's inaccurate. But just you know, making claims outside of context and things like that could could raise tensions. You've seen some of the comments from some politicians and some industry leaders encourage you know vigilantes to go uh, and and essentially tear down the barriers. You know, people who aren't police officers, aren't you know military or anything like that, just. You know, pro, say people who support oil and gas and that and, and things like that, and they are going and taking it upon themselves to tear down barriers. And that's the sort of thing that whether, again, whether or not you agree with these blockades, that's the sort of action where, you know, you could see conflict and, and hopefully it would, would not lead to any serious harm or, or suffering. But it's like when you have people who aren't trained in conflict 
resolution going to tear down barriers because they disagree with it, and it's intertwined in some cases with discrimination and racism, like you could see that causing real lasting issues. Well, uh, we're optimistic and hopeful, I guess, about what might happen later on today, but, but I'm not so sure that, uh, that they're ready to move. I, and I'm talking about both sides in this issue. Mm-hmm. But one meeting but sure. one meeting is better than nothing at all. Christo, thank you so much yeah. for this. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Christo Avalos, of course, from uh, U, of, U of T. Uh, and that meeting will be happening a bit later on. And, of course, we'll cover that here on 900CHML as soon as we get some results of what uh, what's going to be said and maybe, maybe some path towards a resolution to this. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.